Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters for the week ending 7th of February. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this week's podcast, you will hear us uh, having a chat about Jesse's new obsession with collecting a coloured $2 coins. Yep, they exist. They exist. Didn't know this prior to this. Uh, we also had a chat to Professor Tim Entwistle from the Royal Botanic Gardens, kind of discussing strategies uh, to conserve the Botanic Gardens in the face of the climate emergency. And also, uh, Jock, is it Djokovic who went and visited a tree at yeah, the Botanic Gardens? Yeah, yeah Djokovic and his love of a tree, one tree. Mm. A fig tree, I believe. Uh, yeah, not. I don't, think it was, oh, I don't think it was a fig tree, but that's I all right. I reckon it was. Did you think yeah. it was a maple or...? Uh, no, that's all right. I just, can't remember. I, I just can't remember the name of it. Yeah, I reckon it was a fig and listeners will be able to find out and see who's right. Also, <laughs> Dr. Jen came in. She's back from Antarctica. She was talking in about uh, if there was um, anything behind the new fad for dopamine fasting. Um, and also we had a chat about school lunches. That's right. We are... Uh... You could say we unpacked school lunches. Well done. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) We spoke to author Sean Byrne about his new book, A Couple of Things, before the end. And um, we checked in for a Chubfish Labor Watch. Plus, uh, Adam Jacoby and Sonia Randawa, uh, we spoke to them about the event. Democracy is not a spectator sport. Melbourne's own Triple R. Everybody have a great weekend. Oh, yeah. Yeah? Yeah, I'm chalking it down as a win. Def. Oh, really? Mm. What did you get up to? Oh, it was just those beaching. Now, was the weather appropriate? Yes. Not really. Kind of. Kind there of. There was a mugginess. Yeah, it was, it was weird. Yeah. But there was, it was, it's the only, not to bang on about Jessie, but it's the only place where she f- can walk. So she's in, the, she's in the ocean. It's freezing. She's wearing a hoodie. Oh, in the water. Like, oh, like a footy that, player. I'm yeah, right. like a footy player. <laughs> exactly. And so, and I, but I was like, I'm not going in the water. So I just walked alongside, I, I walked on the beach while like she was yeah. in there. You like know, a like horse trainer. 50, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like a horse trainer, precisely. Uh, oh, no, sorry. That was not. <laughs> no, uh, that's the thing about like, analogies. Oh, You're going to take all of the horse. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Um, but yeah, anyway. It, God, so, I'm so sorry. <laughs> It was no, but she's coming along well. No, she's a good, she's a beauty. I reckon she's gonna, she's a good run. And Stop uh, it. so sorry. No, she gives. She's a beautiful thing. Had oh, suppose a wetsuit probably can't. Yeah, get it. I I don't know, but it's it's also it's like well, because Sarah made me paranoid because you're like, well, why would you be away that. from? Why would you be away from the hospital? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> So like let's because she wanted to keep staying down there. Oh, I'm it, so like sorry. she she would have been down there today. I feel really bad that I've taken that. No, from no, her. no. I think we we but we all arrived at the same conclusion okay, independently. Right. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I'm just waiting. It, I don't know, but the and the, the her her dad stayed at our place. Um, she. She gets – she's mad for these $2 coins. Have I, have I discussed this? No. no. So you, have you seen these coloured $2 coins? There's a concentric circle within the coin. Oh, yes. There's a gold on the outside, like a red in the middle. It can of- be red, can be blue. There are like really? dozens Do of – them? No, you don't need oh. them. It's a proper two dollar coin. Yeah, yeah, oh, it's legal yeah. tender. Yeah, I haven't seen these. Yeah, they're really rare. Yeah, I've seen. When I've did seen they start one. making them? Is this a Historical thing. Years, no. years ago, not too many years ago, but like within the last five years. Yeah, maybe? within the last five years. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so Jessie's collecting them, but now she's collected so many that it's starting to be like, well, this is real money. Like how that much? We could use like ten bucks, which has got oh, more over a hundred dollars worth. Okay. It could be a uni fund for chubfish. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a uni fund for chubfish. Yeah, possibly. But it's like. <laughs> And then when you have a double up, like what's the point of a double up? Yeah, get yeah. rid of it. Yeah, they need one of each. Yeah, exactly. That's what that, I and there's she's got a hundred bucks worth. Is Over a hundred. And her, her dad goes to this pub, and uh, the and did he take them all and put them in the pool well? Table? He's, he's got he's got these businesses, these little tentacles where he gets the staff to if they see one <gasps> to oh, hold on to it. That is like. Willy Wonka. <laughs> yeah, the yeah. No, who's the who's the 
Oh, oh, I can't remember. The one who owns a factory and yeah. has all the factory workers going through to well, find the Willy golden Won- ticket. Willy Wonka owns a chocolate factory. There's a different factory owner? No, I was trying to be Yeah, yeah. yeah the um, Violet. What's her um, name? Violet the – oh, God. You know, the one, the really – The rich one. And her dad has Veruca Salt. Oh, Salt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Salt's dad going, getting all the factory workers to go yeah. through the boxes for the golden tickets. <laughs> yeah. First, she's a horse. Now she's Veruca Salt. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, Jesse, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, so yeah, he collects all this stuff, and I don't, and I, but she, like hoarding money, I just don't find it. Does she have it's little, too tempting? Does she have little slots to put it in, like little? She's got a display. She's got plastic bags. Oh, I think at work she she glued some to a wall. Oh. Like I think it's beginning to be a bit a beautiful mind. <laughs> <laughs> Now she's Russell Crowe. <laughs> Where did uh, she glue them to the wall, though? Was uh, well, it was, was in her office. Part of a cruel prank? No, well, exactly. It, she, oh, there's two dollars. Oh. yeah, precisely. It's it was yeah, it was all within reach. Yeah, it's it's like a current affairs sting to trap a cleaner or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. Oh god. <laughs> Uh, also, I can't believe I've moved through the world not knowing about these two dollar coins. Obviously, Jesse's dad has been. Do you know what? I've come across them, them and, and I thought, them. "Oh, that's foreign." I thought it's oh, been really? a foreign coin, so I've right. kind of dis- dismissed really? it. But um, but, but it, on closer inspection, I've got, "Oh no, that's actually that's that's real." So yeah, that's yeah. How I know that and like exist. they commemorate different things, mm. and I don't, I, I don't, I have no idea. What the idea is, but they are beautiful. Yeah, right. Can you bring uh, one in if Jesse allows? All right, it? I'll bring one in. That'd be great. Yeah, steal definitely. a bag, bring it in. Um, but I th- genuinely like you know, over a, it's you're starting to get a bit greedy, and there's all the especially when you know, like you're in the city and you need to pay for parking or something. It's true, and you know, there's this like epic bag full of free cash. Wow, I threaten to take it sometimes. Like she knows to be able to, but look surely out for she's me. got w- one of all of them now. Yeah, exactly. Do you reckon she would notice if you put? So when I was younger, my dad uh, liked to love the pokies, and so he had a pokies pot full of one and two dollar coins, mm. and we would go and st- when you were it was in his cupboard, and we'd put our hand up in it and like rifle around just with our hand and grab a couple out when we needed money to get on the tram or yeah. to get something from the shops or whatever. Yeah. And he, he, there was enough in there that he wouldn't notice. The right amount, if you took the right amount. Nice. Uh, do you reckon you could just stick your yeah. hand in the bag and get, get a few <laughs> like, well, out? Well, I think she counts them like every day. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> has a good look at it. Yeah. She <laughs> hasn't got a lot on at the moment, <laughs> has she? <laughs> so I'm going to look at my two dollar coins. Ooh, the blue one. Yeah. Come on, Chubfish, get out. Uh, but but just just watched a lot of tennis. There was because she's she's immobile. And she doesn't know much about movies and stuff, so yeah. I have to like plonk her in front of a movie and choose it. Oh, she's oh, too she indecisive. The- oh, really? Yeah, that's a lot of pressure for you. I to think get it, it is. Right. It's too much pressure. Now I nailed it over the holidays. Nailed oh. it. There was right. like what did, what did there we was watch? there were ten people watching the television, and I was in charge <gasps> of, of the entertaining movie. them, of picking the movie I that would entertain know what, all. What of them. movie did you cool choose? Running cross. It would, well, they would have already so it had to be one they hadn't seen. Oh, right. Okay. Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. No, oh. although all of these are good. But I chose, and God, it was a risk, Harry Brown. Oh. I don't know what that is. Yeah. Michael Caine. Oh. He goes rogue. He's like, there are like thugs in his area or and his friend gets, you know, murdered and it's his community's going to hell. Okay, I'll watch that. Yeah, and he's like, and he's just... You know, he's like, oh, Michael Caine, or Ma- however you do Michael Caine. <laughs> Any Michael Caine. <laughs> yeah. Any Michael Caine being Michael Caine is a winner. Yeah. Like, you can't go wrong. He's pure Michael Caine. Oh. And so it's Michael Caine, like, roughing up drug gangs oh. and stuff as, like, a geriatric. Pink Michael Caine. <laughs> what? And he was, you know, he was he used to be a paramilitary officer or, you know, anyway, I don't give too much away. But I was. it started to get violent. I was like, oh, no, I'm losing him. But they were... They everyone was on board? Yeah, everyone was on board. Oh, what a relief. Yeah. It was a huge relief. That is, it's a stressful thing, picking movies. Yeah. And then they stuck around and I played chess. In front of them, for them. Well, you know, like and with then- the brother. Now, this is the thing, because people have this mistaken impression that I'd be like good at chess. 
Yeah, not good yeah, at chess. You look like a chess player. Yeah. yeah. I think anyone that can play chess is good at chess. Oh, you mean if you know the rules, you're yeah. good. You're good to go. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Really? Because I know the rules, but I would I would know nothing from there. Do you know? Do you know? Like I know how to go. I know where to go, but I don't know anything more. It, you know, you've got no strategy. No, there's no strategy. Yeah, uh, no yeah. Talk, yeah. I can't see more than I can't. I, I, I almost choose not to see ahead. Right? Does, make, does that make you good? Is, no, 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 I'm not good. You got to okay. plan two moves but, ahead. Exactly. Mm. But this is the thing, like Gary Kasparov. So famous, oh, yeah, yeah, the... yeah, but famous chess player and also political guy, mm. like Russian dissident. Mm. You know, I listen to him talk about he. There's things he's getting wrong. What do you mean? Like you know, you don't because he's. Uh, what I'm saying is, chess as intelligence. Can it map onto every sphere of life? No, no, uh, no, no it can't. No. So, so why can't just because you're good at chess and it's an isolated thing? Yeah, doesn't make you good at everything. Doesn't make you good at everything. And if you're good at something else, that doesn't necessarily make you good at chess. I feel yeah. like we've hit on a sore point in yeah. your life. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. According to Dr Dave Kendall, Senior Lecturer in Environmental Management from the University of Tasmania, in the next 50 years, 20 to 50% of current plant species in botanic gardens and urban landscapes will likely confront temperatures those species have never before experienced. In 2017, over a quarter of plant species at Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria were rated as high risk of not surviving in the Melbourne climate of 2090. And as an intense summer continues, the Bureau of Meteorology says 2019 was Australia's hottest and driest year on record. So what strategies exist to conserve botanic gardens in the face of a changing climate? To tell us, we're joined by the Director and Chief Executive of Royal Botanic Gardens Victoria, Professor Tim Entwistle. Tim, welcome to Breakfasters. Oh, good morning. Good morning to you. Now, Victoria is the uh, garden state. I've seen on licence plates. What, <laughs> what, what are some of the uh, tangible threats to that, um, to that held, uh, you know, the, our passionate... Our commitment, love. our love of gardens. <laughs> Look, there's a lot, and as you said, this, there's a, it's a big concern for people growing trees, growing shrubs, or just about everything we grow in our garden is constrained by the temperature, the rainfall. So with climate change, we know it's going to get warmer. The predictions are there'll be less rain, there'll be more days over 35 degrees. And as you quoted, if we look through, say, a botanic garden, uh, a quarter to half of those species may not survive in, say, 70 years. So when you plant a tree today, it's going to live for 100 years perhaps, a good, a good tree, maybe 150 years, and you've got to plant knowing what that climate's going to be. So for us in a botanic garden, we've, we've often spent a lot of time looking outside the garden. So we work with the zoo and, other, and the department, for example, on you know, bushfire recovery and all kinds of things out in native forests. We now have to also look back inside the garden and say, if we want that to survive, look like it is today, we have to plant differently. Mm. And and so how how have those changes been enacted so far? Well, look, the big thing for us is that each time we go to plant one, so we lost a, a great big um, oak tree over Christmas, a huge big 150-year-old tree. So when we replace that, we now have to think, well, what's going to grow uh, in the conditions we predict for Melbourne, which is a bit like Dubbo, uh, Algeria, places in Mexico. That's the kind of climate we're looking at. So what we do is we run all the potential species through a bit of a matrix. We get, and this, this information is pretty easily available on temperatures where they grow, rainfall where they grow. And we say, look, this, this, these are the kind of species that will grow in Melbourne then. This is the, the choice we can make. The one that actually fell over, the, the big old oak tree, doesn't look like it will do so well in Melbourne. It's not going to tolerate those conditions. So we look for a, a slightly different species Maybe the same look, so it's still an oak tree, you know, oak lawn, but looks a bit different. And we would plant that based on all the information we have of where it grows around the world. Mm. And just as an aside, so the, all the wood is a part of this giant oak that collapsed. What, what, what are you going to do with it? Aha, uh-huh. well, we're going to reuse some of that wood. So we've got a group called the Melbourne Guild of Fine Woodworking. <laughs> we work with on this kind of thing and they'll be able to reuse that wood we're also looking perhaps at maybe putting a, a bit of a, a seat or a sculptural element where that tree was to celebrate it because it is such a big old tree you know 150 years pretty pretty long time and even all the the leaves and small matter on that tree gets reused 
either in the botanic garden or the local area, we, we recycle everything that comes off the garden back into the garden as well. Can I ask potentially a dumb question? How, how old is the botanical gardens? Uh, it's uh, nearly 175 years old. So wow. it's, next year we're 175. And, of course, your predecessors would have thought about the future, but you now have to think about the future yeah, in different ways. Yeah, they did, exactly. I mean, and it's a fantastically – it's a beautiful botanic garden, and the design there by this guy called William Guilfoyle was, is, is known to be one of the best around the world. And when he planted uh, trees in the gardens, he was very, very careful about what he planted, and he put in things that he thought would survive in the garden state in Melbourne – and and he got the stuff from tropical, subtropical Australia. He knew they would grow there. Uh, he didn't have the the information we have today. Uh, he wasn't aware that the climate was going to be changing so rapidly. This was in the 19th, late 19th century. Um, so we now know when we plant a tree, look, there's going to be something else we have to think about, not just Melbourne today but Melbourne in a few years. And what what's really knocking gardens around are those high temperature days. So when you get a, a string of days above 35, that's when a lot of the, the trees suffer particularly. Mm. Do gardens like the botanic gardens have the capacity or do certain plants have the capacity to kind of change uh, or evolve with the uh, with the environment and as the weather changes, or is it? Do they just die? <laughs> they, look, they do a little bit, and and out in natural systems, there's a, there's a capacity there, and we we like that's what we like to keep fairly large areas. So there is a, some some individuals will be able to tolerate that, and through genetic change over time, they can adapt, and that is true. But that's a long term change, and climate change is happening so quickly. It's not allowing these species to adapt. But what we can, one of the interesting things we can do in a botanic garden or in a garden is if we like a particular species, we could go and recollect from, say, it's an Australian species from slightly higher up or a drier area where it grows, and we get these little ecotypes or variants that are a little bit more tolerant than the rest of the species. So you can get something into the garden that might be tougher. So it's not always a case you've got to put something different in you can go and find and and it just it takes a bit of research but you can do that it's obviously uh, fun to get lost in the gardens and uh, Djokovic I think celebrated his Australian Open win in the gardens he did, did he? Yeah. what was he doing <laughs> well look he loves one particular tree there's a, a tree there a Morton Bay fig which which grows really commonly in Brazil I think that's where he's seen it growing in Brazil but it comes from Morton Bay in Quinta and he um, he loves that tree so every time he comes to Melbourne he spends time in the gardens doesn't do it publicly he sort of creeps in there I think and has a little wander around when, when no one's there oh, the idea of Djokovic <laughs> creeping around <laughs> the gardens is so good <laughs> he, he creeps he does it fairly quietly yeah. and look yesterday when he came to the gardens he he said, you know, he, he said to me, the fa- the, his favourite place in Melbourne, this tree is a tree he likes to go to, to commune with in some way. So, look, he's a, he loves nature yeah. and, and he has this side of him that has a real connection with the garden, which is fantastic. So you're taking some credit for the win there? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, look, I, I had to help him hold the trophy. It was too heavy for him, so I, just, I took up one side. Uh, <laughs> but there's, there's obviously a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. What about biosecurity? Yeah, look, biosecurity is another big one for us because there's a thing called myrtle rust, which has come into Australia in recent years. It attacks things in the myrtle family, or the myrtle group of plants and tea trees, that kind of thing. And w- every now and then that sort of pops down into Victoria. So we, we, we look out for that, we monitor it because we have such a variety of plants in the gardens. It's a great sort of sentinel place. You know, you can see things when they first appear in the state and we can then pick them up and hopefully get them out of their gardens. But we do know... With climate change, the, the pest diseases will change. It's not not so much that they're worse ones when it's warmer. It's just that we're not used to those. The plants who are growing here have adapted to the pests and diseases that are here. Mm. So if something new comes in that is going to affect gardens as much as it is natural systems. And that's that's a big worry for us out in the natural system. So they're affected by the, the droughts, by the fires. Um, we've got a seed bank, which we hold of seed bank. So we're working on a kind of insurance policy for the state as well. And, and part of that is if there's a disease or something comes in Due to the changes in climate, we can react by bringing species back if we have to as a yeah. kind of last resort. And what do you do about securing water supply? Uh, well, in the botanic gardens in Melbourne and Cranbourne, we get some recycled water, particularly we work at Cranbourne on a, a fully recycled water system. In Melbourne, about 40% in a good year comes off stormwater. And we're looking at, I'd like to get it 100% off 
potable water, tap water. Uh, so it's a, it's a mix at the moment, and it's tr- we're trying, if we can, to get as much of that water from places. It could be from the Yarra River, it could be from stormwater, and and you know taking taking the reliance off that tap mm. water. And you're part of an alliance too, aren't you? Yeah, we've set set up a, a climate change alliance with botanic gardens. So when we discovered this this information around the how many of our species might not survive, we're, it, it's interesting. Not many gardens had looked at it that way. I think in Australia. Where we're more concerned, well, <laughs> some of us are more concerned about climate change, and we we certainly want to respond to it. And we found that other botanic gardens hadn't planned that way. So we set up this climate change alliance of international gardens. Uh, there's about fifty of them now, and that's about sharing plant material, sharing information. So if we do want to get other species in, or other gardens need our species, we can exchange that. So this alliance is a a new thing started in Melbourne, but uh, it's going to become a, an international network. Cool. Are there any perks for you? Can you go? To a, a you got botanic... to hang out with Novak. No, 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 no. With the alliance overseas, oh. with different. Ah. <laughs> I was going to say, I get to go to Travar Studios. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a real plan. Uh, got and, and is there anything that, as a citizen of Melbourne, you would like to see? Individuals, how we can put our shoulder to the wheel in any way? Oh, look, I, like it, like anyone who's concerned about our, our environment, and our city. I'd like to see us take climate change seriously, and I'd like us to respond. It is, it is here. It, it, there's there are effects already, so we need to respond to that. But not only that, to actually change things in our lives so there is less carbon going into the atmosphere. I mean, that's that's a given, a complete given. Uh, but then, in your gardens, think about what you're planting. Think about why you're planting the things you're doing. Sometimes it's for wildlife. Sometimes it's for beauty, you love particular plants, but just put a bit of thought into that and do what you can for the environment generally. And that's that's you know that's a great way to start each day. I think. Well, uh, thank you very much, Tim Entwistle, and good luck with the Australian Open next year. <laughs> <laughs> Triple R. Dr. Jen is back onto a different continent uh, for Weird Science, Antarctica. Yeah, cold. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> we, we could talk for 15 yeah, we, hours. Yeah, we won't. We won't like. get into it. But. No, it was, it was extraordinary. I feel absolutely blessed to have had the opportunity to see such a place with my own eyes. Just mm. incredible everything you've imagined and more in terms of the beauty and the stillness and the wildlife, um, but also the anxiety that comes with understanding more about climate change and how it's affecting our planet. Mm. So a bit of a roller coaster, but just incredible. I'm interested, and, and we'll get into this another time, but just how long distance runner went in a place where you had to stay pretty much within a certain you know distance I suppose yeah well I only did one run the whole time which was kind of okay because I'd done a marathon not that long before but the only way I could run was we had one deck on the ship that went all the way around so you could do laps and it was 170 meters and so one night I um I went out running because I couldn't really run when there were lots of other people walking on the deck or when people were sleeping because the track (laughs) was you know the deck was directly above where people were trying to sleep so one (laughs) night I decided running was more important than dinner so instead of going to dinner I went out running it was just me and it was mind-blowing because it was just me and a whole lot of orcas. Oh, as I'm running, I'm watching orcas Get around the ship. Out. Yeah, it was quite mind blowing. So yeah, I did 50 laps, which I yeah. think is about 8k. And then I was like, yeah, this is silly. I'm just going to stop and watch the orcas. Was it hard to resist <laughs> wanting to get? your phone out in a moment like that just because we're so compelled to do that you're seeing something that extraordinary yeah how did you stop yourself from going i'm gonna film the orcas well, is that right or that actually links in beautifully to what i want to talk about today ah. because i really lost the compulsion oh, to sorry. use my phone at all mm-hmm. um really? you know the less i used it because there was no internet access i mean that's not true Full disclosure, I could have paid to have internet access, but I chose not to. Yeah. Um, yeah, full disclosure, other than, you know, if I'd really been desperately wanting to, I could have. I just didn't have any internet access. And I, it was so good. I lost all but- interest in my phone incredibly quickly. So, of course, I took lots of photos, but it wasn't like I was taking photos every second. Oh, okay. I also really wanted to watch things and remember them. And, in fact, the highlight of probably one of the wildlife highlights of my whole experience, because I am a, you know, a wildlife ecologist by mm. training, was seeing this beautiful family of orcas. And I didn't even have my phone with me. I had no recording device with me. And so I was like, I might just watch. What a radical <laughs> idea. And just kind of remember this in my mind. And I, I remember it very clearly. I can remember oh. it now. Yeah, isn't that awesome? <laughs> These two baby orcas. 
Oh, They're just wow. so cute. But I was thinking about, you know, what topic to bring in today because, you know, it's my first time back for the year and I wanted it to be something good, but I kind of somehow wanted to link to, to Antarctica as well. And I came across this idea that got lots of media coverage late last year called dopamine fasting. Have you guys mm. heard all about dopamine fasting? So the Silicon Valley fad? Total Silicon Valley fad. And the idea is that um, you basically uh, need to cut off all external stimul- uh, stimulation for some periods of time. Time, you know, whether it's a day, a month or whatever it is. So that means no food, no screens, um, ideally no interaction with people, definitely no intimacy, but ideally, you know, no eye contact with people, no artificial lighting, um, you know, anything that could possibly stimulate you. And the, the proponents of this idea basically argue that um, – We've become completely overstimulated in our world by constant hits of dopamine. Um, and we'll talk in a minute about what dopamine actually is. But, you know, because of um, all the lovely food and all the technology and all the social media, you know, we're just constantly overloaded and we need to somehow reset our base level of stimulation. And so the Silicon Valley uh, crew are arguing that the only way to do that is to completely abstain from anything that could stimulate you. And I don't know, I'm pretty sceptical and we'll talk about the science of it in a minute, but it kind of links to my entire experience because I did take away a lot of kind of technological stimulation and very quickly I lost interest in it and had no compulsion whatsoever. Did you feel because of that any benefits that you could identify? Oh, are just replacing really... one with another? Yeah. Or orcas. Yeah, orcas, yeah. that's right. I think it's a really good question, Jess, because it wasn't like I wasn't stimulated. You know, I yeah. was surrounded by a hundred of the most interesting people I've ever met. There was the most beautiful scenery you could possibly imagine. So it wasn't like I wasn't stimulated, but it was more just the habitual checking of a phone, I think, that yeah. I just completely lost interest in. So. I mean, this whole idea of dopamine has been massively simplified by the media. So dopamine essentially is a, it's a neurotransmitter. So it's a chemical in our brains that sends messages. And it is involved in this reward system of, oh, I feel good when I you know, see a notification that someone liked my picture on Insta or whatever it is. But it's also involved with other really important things like movement. So Parkinson's disease is actually... Um, uh, you know, the, the um, origin of Parkinson's disease is not having enough dopamine. Does that mean people with Parkinson's are depressed? Oh, that's a really long involved question. Okay, sorry. Right. Yeah, look, I don't know enough about Parkinson's to answer that. Um, I don't think directly as a result of the dopamine, okay. no. But it certainly has mood effects, okay. no question. But again, it's confounded. You know, other other symptoms of dopamine, right. uh, sorry, other symptoms of Parkinson's making you feel really miserable, mm. you know, which kind of which came first. But so dopamine is much more than just reward and it's been dubbed the pleasure chemical and, and most um, people who do research in the neurology, they say it's actually it's wrong, it's not really pleasure, it's about motivation. And so mm. this very simplification of, I need more dopamine to feel good, it's mm. completely not right. It's much more complicated than that. But, um, you know, there is some truth definitely that we have these, you know, these habits. We get used to this pattern of, oh, yeah, I'm going to, you know, pick up my phone and see what's going on and that feels good. So I sort of think part of the problem with this whole idea of dopamine fasting and why it's been so ridiculed is because it's called dopamine fasting. You know, if you just talked about maybe, you know, one day a week have a bit of a break where you don't pick up your phone so much or you, you know, you go and meditate, which is essentially what they're arguing, right? Mm. Like, being in yeah. a quiet room, not picking up any screens. No distractions. No distractions. Isn't that kind of what meditation is? Like people go on meditation retreats. So mm. I sort of think the proponents of this have done themselves a real disfavour by calling it dopamine fasting because you can't reduce the amounts of dopamine in your body and if you did it would have really serious consequences for your health. We don't even have any way of measuring dopamine levels in our brains. That's never been done accurately. And the idea of somehow changing the levels of dopamine or resetting them, that's all just complete nonsense. Or here's something, a good spin to put on it. If you were in prison and you were sent to solitary confinement, you could just be like, it's all right, guys, I'm just dopamine fasting. Yeah, exactly. I'm also on the keto diet. Yeah, yeah that's right. And I do. I do all these other really good things for me. But it's a really good point because one of the things that worries me about it, like I think it's a great idea to say let's all have some time without tech. Mm. And I love, that was one of the things I loved about Antarctica. No technology. It was awesome. Um but to suggest that you shouldn't have any interaction with people, I don't know. Yeah, that, I think that's the a no eye bit contact thing is weird. 
And one of the tweets that got a lot of bad press was someone saying, this is, this is San Francisco being really San Francisco. I bumped into a friend I hadn't seen for six months. It was so great to see him. But he said he couldn't talk to me because he was dopamine fasting and it would be too much stimulation. I'm like, what is that? Yeah. Good way to get out of a conversation just, you don't yeah. want to have. Also, the, the kind of dystopian irony of Silicon Valley promoting dopamine fasting yeah. and yeah. sending their own kids to schools that don't have computers. I know. It's, yeah. You know what? What's good for them isn't. You know. Yeah, one one day a week I'll dopamine fast just to clear my you know clear my levels, and the other six days a week I'll work on how to make you more addicted <laughs> to your <laughs> technology. <laughs> what's the irony there? Mm. So, so I think my take on this whole thing is that you know it shouldn't be called dopamine fasting. It's nonsensical to talk about reducing or or limiting or resetting dopamine levels. But from my own experience, stepping back and just having some still and some perspective and some thinking time without constantly being distracted. Yeah. That was pretty awesome. But what about now, now that you're back, have you brought – have the bad habits re-emerged? They did for a little while and then I took stock and realised what I was doing and I went in on my phone and put on all these screen limits and it's great now. You know, I give myself half an hour for basically anything on my phone and when my half an hour's up, I just it – just, it's like it's no longer an option for me. I've never asked for more time from my little screen limit device. I just – it's just like, oh, okay, that's done for the day. I'm not interested anymore and I move on. So, yeah, and I do regain that sense of peace of there's all these things happening out there but I don't need to know about them and I don't need to be involved with them and I've got other better things to do yep. with my time. Oh, what a dream. Well, if you want to follow Dr. Jan <laughs> – I won't be on social media. It's so. at Doc Martin on Twitter It's really boring. <laughs> I better tweet quickly. <laughs> uh, see you next time and welcome back. Thank you. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. The event Democracy is Not a Spectator Sport is an interactive panel that will explore why healthy democracy matters, key symptoms of sickness and tangible ideas for its improvement. The evening is organised by a coalition of everyone with a vision of disrupting the politics of despair and we're joined by its founder, award-winning journalist Dr Sonia Randawa and also speaking on the panel, entrepreneur and creator of democracy startup My Vote, Adam Jacoby. Sonia and Adam, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks, Thanks very much for having us. Pleasure. Uh, Sonia, we'll start with you. Can you tell us how Coalition of Everyone came to be and why you believe it's necessary? We've seen, we're seeing that politics at the moment is broken. The leaders aren't able to make the difficult decisions that the public wants, particularly around the climate crisis. And so we feel that there are alternatives out there that are working and that have been shown to bring people together rather than divide people the way that party politics at the moment is doing. And we're really interested in exploring that and in building a more democratic culture to support the changes that we need to see um, in the political system. Mm. And you, you've uh, you promoted the idea of citizens' assemblies, which... which to be fair, got a bad rap with Julia Gillard. Didn't, didn't she promote Citizens' she Assembly? She did, yes, and they did get a bad rap with Julia Gillard. But um, there's been a lot more experience now internationally with Citizens' Assembly. Um, France is looking at holding, instituting standing Citizens' Assemblies to advise on environmental legislation, for example. There's standing Citizens' Assembly in East Belgium, and there's a couple of um, city councils around Victoria that are also looking at standing Citizens' Assemblies. So we've, we're seeing that there's they're getting more more proven and that they are helping to again bridge those deep divides and societies as divided as Northern Ireland. So I think that we're seeing that now that they've got a track record, mm-hmm. there's a lot more interest in them. Uh, Adam, you have a business background. Can you outline some of your expertise and how that informs your passion for democracy? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question. I've never had that question before. Many years of doing this. Um, I, I, to be honest, I'm not sure that the business expertise really does um, impact this part of my world, um, save for the fact that, you know, you have to coordinate people and point them in the direction and ideally lead by example and show some integrity in the decisions that you make. Um, but, you know, from, from my perspective and the interest that I have in this event um, is that for a long time, um, the progressive side of politics, of which I am an active participant, um, has not been particularly well organised. Um, it hasn't had a very clear vision and been able to define what success looks like. Um, and it's been playing on the fringes of impact. And so even where you have individuals within any of the major parties 
who have an intent to find some progressive way forward that is based on fact and transparency and accountability, all of those underlying requirements in a democracy. Um, invariably, those people get squashed by the system and by the way politics gets played. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, my contention has been for some time, I'm writing a book about this right now, if I ever finish it, who knows, but, uh, <laughs> but I've been doing it for a while. Um, and, you know, the contention is that democracy and politics are mutually exclusive. They can't actually coexist. They're not the same thing. And if you are intending to deliver genuine democracy, you can't play politics the way that we play it today. And if you are engaged in politics, you will never deliver genuine, genuine democracy. Mm. And so, you know, what I'm excited about with the event is the ability to flesh out these ideas about how we as a community can start making informed unified decisions about the best path forward that are based on fact um, that do offer the space that democracy requires for people to have different opinions about how to go, uh, what to do with the facts, um, but we can at least start agreeing on what the starting point is. The, the challenge that we have in politics now is you have the two major parties who can't even agree what the facts are. Um, and, you know, I would put to you, and this isn't a left or a right thing, this is just a a leadership thing, um, that our government is just celebrating willful ignorance. They they just embrace this, like they're like a, a the living embodiment of Kruger-Dunning effect. Um, <laughs> it, it's just extraordinary to watch and every day it gets worse and worse. And so what we have to be able to do is say, look, whether we like it or not, this is the starting point on this issue. Now we can have different opinions about how to deal with that issue and that's what politics is about, is about fleshing that out. But let's have some leadership that says, here's where we are, we recognise this is what better looks like. Now, how do we get to better mm. and have a, a consensus around that? I think a lot of people have lost faith in the system, in politics, um, for good reason. Should. Yeah, for all the reasons you've just yeah. kind of laid out there. How do you then regain the people's trust in being effective? Uh, so how do you get them on board to participate in what you're talking about? Um, I think that part of it is that people don't see the connection between what they want and what the politicians do. And I think that rebuilding those connections so that the people have actual influence over the policy decisions, not just that politics of fear that happens at elections. It's like, oh, no, if I don't vote for them, then we're going to get a death tax, for example. Um, and I think that having... Being able to see that connection between, okay, if I do this, then something is going to happen that's connected to that. And we're not seeing that at the moment. Yeah, look, to me, I think that's right. Um, for me, it's an ecosystem redesign. And, and, and that sounds really complex and scary. Um, but the reality is that any of the independent um, interventions you could make will not change anything. So even if you change the way donations work, but you're still allowed to misinform citizens, we'll have the same problem. If you change the misinforming of citizens, but you can still buy policy outcome, nothing changes. If you do both of those things, but politicians aren't required to actually listen to what the people want and are not required to deliver their will, then nothing changes. And so we have to really genuinely ask ourselves the question, do we want to continue playing politics or do we want democracy? And if the choice the community makes is that we want democracy, then we have to redesign the way the system works. Sonia, you've worked on media democratisation and freedom of information and media freedom in Malaysia. Yes. Uh, can, you, can you give us an idea of what, in your experience, are some of the signs to look out for for a... A democracy that's <laughs> in danger. Uh, let's see. I think that um, not allowing journalists into bushfire relief centres is a big flag. Not allowing them uh, where to where demonstrations are being held. I think that um, if you're trying to block people from knowing what's actually happening, to me that's a really big flag. And that was why I've always been interested in the media, former journalist, and interested in telling the story of what's going on because I think that helps people. It's not the only thing, but it helps people to make informed decisions. I think that we're seeing a situation where the shift in laws to allow um, offshore detention in the first place and now expanding offshore detention to people who are potentially sick is also another really scary thing. Coming from a background where people can disappear in the middle of the night is in Malaysia, um, I really don't want to see things like that happening in the country that I've chosen as my home now as mm. well. Uh, and sorry, go on. If no, you have I, an look, I, I was going to. I don't disagree with any of that. Although I think um, that a lot of that is um, policy related, and so I think that even that has a particular ideological lens. And I might 
support those lenses, but I think we need a democracy is a different thing because democracy is for everyone and it's about every view being heard and every voice being heard. I think the best example we had of how broken our democracy is in this country was the marriage equality you know um, non-compulsory postal vote ludicrous mm. thing that we had in that in that example and I've spoken to political leaders right across the country about this um, we had both sides of politics um, were elected representative to seats that went against the will of the people within their constituencies so there were groups of people who voted um, against gay marriage and um, the uh, re- elected representatives were for it and vice versa and I think that was the first time, 44 years old, that was the first time in my life as a constituent I was asked what I thought about a policy issue. And so for the first time, our parliamentarians genuinely knew what the country wanted, seat by seat. And we still had an example of people who said, I've listened to you and there's an overwhelming majority of you and you elected me to represent your view and I'm going to ignore it anyway. And that to me was the critical symbol that democracy is dead in this country. Mm-hmm. When you have elected representatives who know and still ignore, we're in real we're in real trouble. So, what, what do you help hope to achieve for the for the night, and what, what's on the bill, and what can we look forward to? Um, what we want to do is we want to provide people with more ideas of how politics could change, how democracy could re- be rebuilt, and to give them some experience of what that deliberative process, the deliberative processes that would be involved in rebuilding democracy might look like. Mm. And, and do you, what do you, do you have an, uh, ideas that you want to put forward on the night? Is it a, and it's an interactive panel. What does that mean exactly? Uh, yeah, I think I mean, the interactive panel is that we will probably speak the, the, the speakers, and it's really an amazing list of speakers. speakers yeah, together. so who, who, um, and I'd be keen to. So we will speak to each other, so yeah. it won't just be sort of a and A thing, but also the audience will be able to engage with us. So it, it really will be a conversation more than yeah. a, a set of speeches. Mm. Yeah, and keeping the panelists' discussion to really short, sharp interventions, so that we can have as much interaction with the um, people that come along as well, and it's not just. We are experts speaking down to people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That'd be going against Well, democracy is not a spectator sport. It's on at Central Hall in Brunswick Street, Fitzroy. Uh, sorry, no, it's on at the old council chamber in uh, Trades Hall. Okay. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's still on Thursday, 13th of Feb. It's still on Thursday, 13th of Feb. At 6.45pm. You can get tickets via eventbrite.com.au. And uh, we've been speaking with speakers Adam Jacoby and Dr. Sonia Randawa. Thank you both so much for coming Thanks in. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. Triple. Ah. Uh, school is well and truly back. Yes. We're into probably the second week for some, for some students. I'm interested to know, how's your lunchbox looking second week in? Like, I want to know, uh, are there parents out there that started the year with going, here we go. Went to, they've gone to the shops. They've got like a bento box lunch box. They've spent a bit of time and effort. They've cut up some cheese. A bento box lunch box. <laughs> they've cut up some, you know. There's some carrot stick, celery sticks. Oh, yeah. Maybe they've dished out a bit of hummus, and it's all there, ready to go. I want to know what does it look like now. How, are you still at it? Is it still happening? Have you given you, up, or have you given up? Uh, did you make your own lunch when you went to school? In primary school, no. No, all through primary school. Yeah, all through Ooh, primary luxury. school. Got a got a lunch made for me. Very, I was very lucky. I went through stages though of I was a very bad. I used to get stuck, fixated on one thing that I didn't really like very much, but I couldn't make decisions about what I wanted. So I'd often have the same lunch every day, like Promite Pitta. I reckon I had every day for about six months at one stage and mum would get so frustrated and go do you want to maybe you want to change that and go no pro Mike peter again or chicken loaf sandwiches with tomato sauce yeah that was another phase i went through and then when i was in year four i briefly just gave up and couldn't was so bad at making decisions about my lunch that i just asked for two mandarins for lunch every day and that's what your mum gave you. Yeah, and mum would get so angry. Well, she tried to, you know, when a kid, she'd try to give me sandwiches, but I just wouldn't eat them and I'd just eat mandarins. Uh, I know, it's it's weird, but I was just, yeah. I, had, I had weird. Did you get hungry or did you, were you like stealing food off other kids? Possibly doing that. I used to get jealous of people's junk, you know, junk food because mm. we weren't allowed. I, I Like I actually got jealous because in the I reckon in the 90s it was popular to not have homemade things and my mum would home make slices and sandwiches, which mm. is actually 
lovely yeah. and wasn't it great that she did that? But in my mind, I wanted packets of... You were a muesli bar. Yeah, and... I wanted things in packets mm. and, and delicious snacks. I didn't want like homemade slices and stuff. Mm. I mean, so apparently from kindergarten to year 12, you, uh, there were around 2,600 lunches. That's per kid. Really? Yeah. Oh, my poor so mum. You, yeah, you're multiplying that by multiple kids. And that's how – I mean, I, I have no me- – I used to actually look forward to, <laughs> to a la snack. Like, I I mean, it just – No, that's – that, all, yeah, I, all that's I wanted you, was a la snack. Yeah. All yeah. I wanted or a roll-up. But I did – I did worry that the the biscuit to cheese ratio wasn't it's, quite it's wor- always it's wrong. wrong. It's wrong. It's yeah. still wrong. Yeah, yeah. They need more cheese there or was, fewer yeah. biscuits. There was always some dirty kid who dip their finger in the cheese too. Yeah, I'll do that. Oh. No, I mean, no. Would I do it? Yes, but not if anyone not was watching. Not in someone else's. Not cheese. in someone else's cheese. Yeah, yeah. and I'll lick it out. Yeah. The only thing that was worth looking forward to, and sorry about this brand name, but I think it might be defunct now. Anyway, I'd murder a fruit. Oh, oh Yeah. Now they yeah. still exist. Like it's a dirt, I think. It's like the it was the only yogurt you could like hold upside down and it wouldn't fall out. Yeah. Mm. I think it still exists. Did you get fruishes? Okay, yeah, yeah, I did. Oh, yeah, so okay, we've got one of those. Do you know what I'd we'd make from year one I was making my own lunch. Wow, good idea. Were you? Yeah. What was that about? Mum had, or I was the fifth child. Had so child. many kids, yeah. <laughs> she was yeah. Like, no, you're on your own That's now. great. You get yourself to school and you make your own lunch. Uh, but mum would buy... Uh, I thought you'd be more effective at... At ma- life at in life. general? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, I'd make my own lunch, but I'd still, like, look at other people's lunches and be like, come on. I remember I went to school... <laughs> come on. <laughs> I'd argue with this, one of my classmates... Who was a, a swimmer, and so she probably would do I don't know how many laps in the morning, and then come to school, and then she ended up winning a silver medal at the Olympics at the Sydney Olympics. So, yes. was you know, it was she had every right to have two sandwiches at lunchtime. Yeah, right. But I'd rock, I'd look up, and obviously I wouldn't have made my lunch or something like that. And I'd go, come on, mate, give me a sandwich. <laughs> She'd be like, no. And I was just like, I can't believe that you wouldn't give me a sandwich. You've got two. What are you doing? Give me one of your sandwiches. And she was like... I'm training for Sydney. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. Just you wait. It's like the kids who held... Who would get packets of chips and not eat them all at once. Because I was so excited to get a treat, I just... Oh, stuff yeah. a treat into my face if yeah. I got it. And there was kids who got chips all the time and they'd lord them around over all the others. So they'd walk around with a packet of burgerings, gripping the bottom of it so you couldn't get your hand in properly when you asked for a chip mm. oh. and would sit on it all of lunchtime. Yeah. Oh, I hated those kids. Yeah. Where are they now? Yeah, not – Yeah. who knows? Not, not here. Not on Triple R. <laughs> not winning silver medals. <laughs> Not bagging out children they went to school with 20 years ago. But most most days I would make myself a peanut butter and honey sandwich and have a piece of fruit. Maybe um, like mum would have like some home brand muesli bar, Mm. take that. And then, but then we get um, the primers. um, Oh my God, primers. Yeah, but we keep them in the freezer. Oh, the frozen, the fright. Oh. So I'd, I'd take it and I'd take a teaspoon, and then I would just have like this delicious. I'd, like by lunchtime, mm. it was just perfect to. Frozen eat. Prima was the frozen margarita of yeah. primary school. It was about as good as it got. Yeah, even sometimes in my adult life, I've bought bought them and put them in the freezer as a delicious summer treat. Mm. I think our canteen later, because we didn't I didn't have a canteen at primary school or and only in year eleven and twelve, but they had sunny boys. Yeah. And that was, you know, and now they what don't a have classic. them anymore. Mm. But the in the States only nine percent of high school students meet the US's uh, dietary guidelines for fruit and only two percent meet the vegetable recommendation. Like school lunches are a mess. And then now I'm worried that if you know if have Jug- they checked the bottom of the, the yeah, bags? Exactly. Uh, for the squash banana. But the yeah. the uh, I'm worried about packaging now. Like there's gonna be there must be guilt about packaging. Well no, there's many schools that they'll have um you have to bring your lunch, but there's no no waste. How do you wrap up a sandwich? Well, you don't. 
You put you just, just put it in everywhere. Your That's why everyone's getting bento boxes and, and beeswax is a mm. big deal. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. You can put a, a sandwich in a lunchbox. And you but it just flops to... open. It'll flop open. There's no well, doubt about that. You a smaller that. one. One in nine times. What a tiny gonna... little sandwich-sized lunchbox. Yeah, you can get box. a sandwich-sized lunchbox <sighs> and put it in there it's and reuse it. has got to be another way, doesn't there? Beeswax is the other way. Oh. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you. What about alfoil? We used to use alfoil. Is that okay? No. Is that oh, bad? I don't know. I don't know if it's okay either. I've, I've seen a picture of a kid's lunchbox and there was alfoil. So this sandwich is wrapped in alfoil. That's what mum used to which do. Which is fine. But then it's also inside a, a, a airtight pl- plastic oh. pocket so thing. You just need that. That's all you need. Well, then you got I the always judge the people that had their sandwiches wrapped in foil. I was like, what's wrong with you? Yeah, I always, don't you have I, a sandwich it was, bag? It was very rare. It, yeah. it, you, were, you were the weird one with yeah. the foil. I'm judging but then you, you can make a little hat out of it. So. <laughs> oh my god! Triple R on FM, digital, online, and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Sean O'Byrne is a Melbourne-based writer and critic whose debut collection of short stories, A Couple of Things Before the End, takes the reader on a satirical tour of Australia in a range of voices and moments in time. And the author joins us now. Sean, welcome to Breakfasters. Thanks very much for having me. Our pleasure. Um, can you take us on the uncomfortable task of uh, describing <laughs> the genesis of your own book? <laughs> the genesis of the book was, uh, I have to go ahead and say, my own comparative alienation and Trauma, if that's not too strong a word. <laughs> Growing up in Australia in the 1970s and watching hour after hour of, say, for example, Test Cricket, um, <laughs> I just grew up in a strongly suburban environment where I had the usual problems that would go along with that if you're not that kind of person. And so I was always in a way that I'm sure plenty of people are just set apart enough from what Australian masculinity required of you over and over and over and over and over and over again. And so... Coming into adolescence, I therefore had a series of complaints as well. But um, one of the things that was nice about the book was to try and examine um, the voices of the people that I grew up around. Mm -hmm. But also, and I really like this in fiction, to try and bend myself back towards them, to pass from pointing at something and saying, I dislike that, I dislike that, I dislike that, and coming more towards, look... I love some of these people in a way and I'm like them too in ways that I maybe don't want to confess right away. So to take some of the blokes um, I grew up with and some of my, let's go ahead and say, male relatives and just, yeah, do what I hope um, a good fiction can do, which is to complicate things, make you push past that first amount of alienation. Mm. Well, it's so uh, pitch perfect because there's lots of monologues in the book. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's it, there is a, a deep affection there. Yeah. Um, and, and so is is what is it about Australian masculinity that pushed you in this direction? I think what's interesting – I came to think, like trying to, again, set aside from it and think about it. I think one of the things that's interesting about it is it's what could be thought of as its innocence, um, which, and which comes out of the particular kind of privilege it has – we were a white working class group that had no aristocracy and there's a certain kind of cheeriness that's just always gone along with that. I think if you go to Europe or you go to the United States and you come back here, you see a kind of what can be tiring but it's a kind of fresh optimism amongst the men of Australia sometimes or mm-hmm. the, pe- the people of Australia. Um, and again, going away from that and coming back towards it, there's a story in the book called A Night with the Fellas where this bloke called Josh White gets up and gives a bit of a speech which is the kind of speech you would have heard this at a Brownlow um, Medal Awards night or at um, a bloke's 21st to reproduce some of that kind of talk. And again, not not be cheaply mean about it, but just the way in which the fellas make community together, reassure each other, um, say that things aren't a problem. I think one of the surprises was realising how, I don't know, affecting I still find that, I guess, mm-hmm. even though at the same time, you know, you can be so badly bored by it. You know, yeah. we're all here, we're yeah. together, not a problem. Yeah, yeah. and you just <laughs> it's just it can really it can really make you unhappy. You can yeah. be the you know, the joke on me is you you're the one and I'm sure plenty of people listening to this broadcast which thinks you're the one person in the room who's sort of got his little head down into his chest thinking, I can't take much more of this. Yeah, so I don't know, I just really thought you know. <laughs> It is like a long version of um get around the boys, that yeah. piece yeah. in a nutshell. Yeah. Have you had to discuss 
I mean, because you lean into your past and into maybe people in your life, have, do you, have you felt the need to discuss this with the people in your life that it's <laughs> lent into? <laughs> That's a very good question. I was afraid, like badly scared, that I would be uh, hurting people in a way that I yeah. just didn't want to. And one of the things that I had, it's the difference between reading something and thinking you know it and then getting closer to you. I'd read writers saying, oh, I did this and, you know, people objected to it. And it was at some I didn't understand what it's really like to not to to forget that enough to write it down mm. and then come closer and closer to when people are actually going to see this thing and at that point you find yourself psychologically unprepared in a way that you find a surprise <laughs> <laughs> Um, but people have been very kind to me. And the other thing that comes back around about to do with that is people will give you a go in ways and and people you don't expect will give you a go, will be generous to you about it. There's Again, this is sort of a, maybe rather Australian. People who you expect might be a bit, well, what were you doing that for, will say, oh, yeah, that's good. You, you, did, good. you did that. Mm. They'll just give you a go for going. Mm. I think there's something characteristically Australian about that as well. <laughs> is, is there a story in the book that was the most fun for you to write? Um, maybe Footy Mysteries. Okay. Like it, it was. There's a. There's a. Because that was. Sorry to say this. Good revenge. Um, there's. I had to talk to somebody a writer years ago um, to do with the bookshop. I work at the readings bookshop, and this person who I don't want to be mean about had done a thing where they'd combined a lot of Australian sport with murder mysteries, mm-hmm. and there was just something about that that got on my nerve because because what, what it seemed to be was an extension of the sports system into even further territory. Oh. So, you know, at this point we're like, sport in Australia, have we done enough? I think we should go further. And you think, (laughs) you know, like what further areas can sport be relevant to? And you think, okay, that's a lot because I really do experience the sports system here as disproportionately larger than in any other culture in the world. But all right. So what was funny about that was to go back and go to make my own version of what I think four or five AFL Mysteries would yeah. be like, and then it's so funny that going story. going into what it would be like the case of the missing goal umpire, mm. you know, um, in the Valley of McMold House, and try and just have a tour of that. And it did get some of that. Yeah, if, in other words, if there were some stories that were me coming back more sympathetically to something, yeah, yeah. that story wasn't one of them. Some of the stories I can imagine. It's only a matter of time before. It's- Students applying to go to VCA or NIDA are reading them out because they really are like, you know, monologue pieces. Um, so I'm interested to know in your writing process, you know, you have a background in acting yeah, as well, don't yeah, you? So yeah. it was more sort of, did you go through kind of imagining the character and then writing it? It was it was not like um, acting. I think that the old acting experience was just in me enough where that form Mm. was more familiar to me than more painterly fiction, the sort of fiction where you're really paying a lot of attention to what physical objects look like. I'm not very good at that. But um, the the way it worked mostly was just studying really closely other writers who had made voice or talk pieces. Um, Lydia Davis was really important to me like that. Um, Eudora Welty was really important to me like that. Jane Bowles was really important. Once you saw, there was something about it, like I could partly imagine the person, but what was really useful was seeing how other people had really, you know, and I don't know the extent to which I did this, but I did, was very, very interested in the ways in which other people had made an amount of, prose you know type on the page be experienced as a voice a living Mm. voice and there are people who do it so beautifully well and uh, you're you're a bookseller Uh, what what is it like to have your work appear on the other side of the counter (laughs) i haven't had it much yet the book was um in store on i think monday but i did get a little glow or something i um, went past the paperback bookshop in burke street and i saw through their closed door my little book saying hello to me um, I love that bookshop. I love a lot of bookshops in Melbourne. It does it does do this thing, which I don't know how long this will last, where it does give you a, a proper or more decent sense of community around the book and um, the sense that we're all in something together. Writing can be so selfish, mm. your little amount and your little voice. But one of the things that's nice about having the physical book coming to the world is getting a sense of, well, it's part of a more general defence of the book, which is getting harder and harder to get to. Um, as we screen, 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 yeah. screen. And what if one of your colleagues recommends you a book in your presence where you just cover your ears yeah. and, or, or offer to sign it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, in the book selling, we're full of stories of authors who make mistakes to do with that kind of thing. <laughs> so hopefully I've had a, <laughs> long, enough, I've had a long enough time of 
Yeah, that author who inquires after their book but doesn't say they're the author. Oh, dear, dear. Oh, hello, Graham. What a lovely surprise. <laughs> That's wonderful. I'm glad you didn't tell me first. And then your, your comparative indifference to them. Yeah. So I just hope I'll comply with a straight bat. <laughs> As we say, masculinity. Yeah. Uh, well, a couple of things before the end is out now via Black Ink, and uh, the launch is tonight um, at this at six thirty pm at Readings on Ligon Street. And uh, we've been speaking to author Sean O'Byrne. Thanks so much, Sean. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Thanks, Sean. Triple R. I think it's time for a Chubfish Labour Watch. Oh yeah, right. Well, Chubfish is today's the due date. It is. I thought so. Yeah. It could just be Chubfish Watch. Maybe. Okay, it doesn't matter. Yeah. I don't know. Well, well yeah. so now, now that, you know, any time after today, it, it, he's really just sort of, it feels like he's squatting. <laughs> so, like, before there was an obstetrician appointment on Thursday and Jesse was like, halt, didn't want Chubfish to be born before this appointment because she had a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, so she was, like, lying because you're supposed to move around and, you know, there's lots of inducement methods that, Floating around, you know, eat yeah. spicy food and that sort of stuff. That tea but, that everyone drinks. Yeah, yeah. Raspberry tea. But she was like, none of that. She was. She was like. She it was like. She was. Yeah. She was hanging upside down like a bat to prevent <laughs> it happening. She. But yeah, she was just lying down. And I, I got her an exercise ball, and now she'll be bouncing on that now, like you know, those giant balls. Mm. Um, but yeah, so. Uh, now, whenever I call a family member, it's like. Oh, they're, they're, oh, they're, they're like, like, it's happening. Hello? <laughs> <laughs> so I can't, I can't call that anything <laughs> trivial at all. Um, but, yeah, she, you know, it's getting real now. The thing is we're, we're travelling away again. We're going down to see her parents after the show. Like, oh, away wow. from the hospital again. Away from the hospital because she just wants to be in the water. She wants to be at the beach. Okay. Okay. It's just why, don't, a, why don't you book in a water berth? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, and the but the so the, and the car ride up apparently can be if you if you go into labour and you have Inducing. to drive for a while. Yeah, it can be rough. So we've got as this, we've got this hypnobirthing CD that relaxes you. Oh. But what it's, kinds of things do they say? Oh, you know, imagine you you know on a you know on a cloud and all okay. that sort of stuff. <laughs> but the thing is. It's you're not supposed to really listen to it while driving. So I because you might I don't, fall asleep. I don't want to pass out. So I'm like she's sitting there practicing meditation, oh and I'm god. like slapping my face trying to. Oh my god! Stay awake. Aircon blasting yeah, in your face. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and you know there are affirmations that I have to provide. Like, and there's no way that I'll I can get through these affirmations with a straight face. What kind of affirmation? Yeah. I'm skilled and confident birth partner. Oh, Daniel. Oh, you yeah. have to say that out loud. Yeah, I have to say that out. Do you, you have to believe it? Could you? <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine saying that out loud and not just pissing yourself? I mean, no. I I'm, some some people could. I personally couldn't. Uh, but I just I'll, feel like the judgment from everyone in the room yeah. at that point would be quite high. Yeah, that's right. I'm a confident and skilled birthing partner. Yeah, yeah. Uh, mm. But, you know, because it's good that she's Jessie's on maternity leave because towards the end she was turning up late for work. and we, So she would be – she would have to go to court because she was a lawyer and she would, she would be late to court because she was lying in bed like holding her belly like – Waiting for him to wake up or something. Wow. Yeah, maybe I've said too much. But no, there, no. But there's there's also you know you have, you've got to put a birth plan together, and so I've been looped into this birth plan. How do you plan a bit, one's birth? Well, you 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 list your preferences. Oh right, okay. Mm. And so you know, so what kind you, of um, pain dealing well, mechanisms? She's, do she's you have in- she, number five on the list is looking forward to laughing gas. That's what she's got. Oh, yeah. that's nice. Yeah, you, yeah. Do you yeah. reckon you'll have a go of the gas? I would. I mean, is it allowed? It, yeah, it's allowed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd lo- but I mean, if I have to be the one holding it together, but still, you yeah, know, just a little. Yeah, you just, are a confident and supportive <laughs> birth partner, <laughs> and you deserve to have a little suck on the gas. <laughs> that's right. Also, you might want your child to come into the world hearing your laughter. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's, I mean, that's a nice, nice. way to say it. Yeah. Absolutely. Mum and Dad cackling. Oh, my God. Have you got – do you know about the um, TENS machine? 
Have you got yeah, one of those? Yeah, we don't have one, but they've got one at the hospital. So Laura Dunneman had one. Yeah. I went to see her um, on Monday night and she had one and, they, and she was like, do you want to have a go? <gasps> what a torture machine. Oh, like torture. I, well, for me it was because she said you just – well, she said to me you, you grip it really tightly and then and then she'd kind of turned it on and it was like I had – it was like holding on to an electric fence. <sighs> Turns out you're not supposed to hold no. on to it really tightly. No. And I was like, I felt like, you know, she said it deliberately, to, but she was like, oh, no, sorry, you're just supposed to just – Hold them in your hands. <laughs> I thought they attached to your back. Yeah, you can you can stick them. Oh, I used to have them for my knee to. Oh, to, right. Yeah, but you just I, that, they you just stick them on, and then you could turn it up really intensely or down. Yeah, because Daniel, her um, Laura's um, husband, he was like, "Oh yeah, I'll just turn it on," and he turned and zapped me, and my like, <laughs> I just lost all control of my arms. Oh my I god! Just screamed and went. <laughs> And, were, and he was like, oh, I only had it on a three as well. So anyway, oh. th- that'll be fun for oh, you. Have exactly. a go on the tens but, machine. But there's also the – because the, this hospital, the one of the midwives said, look, look, 60 Minutes did a story on us and it's like that's the last thing oh. you need to Oh, my God, no. <laughs> no. But she was like – 60 they, Minutes did a story on yes, us. But they, they, and they said they called us uh, because of the oh. proclivity for C-sections – they were dubbed Caesar's Palace. Because <laughs> oh. this was in a big chat about, you know, that whole too po- posh to push debate that was right. going around. Oh, my God. Uh, so Caesar's Palace. Yeah. Um, and then it's also, so the birth plan, there's no dimmed lights. She doesn't want dim light, which is fair enough. You don't want to give birth in a 7-Eleven. Yeah. It's doesn't sh- want dim lights. No, she no, wants it. Yeah, strong preference for oh, dim, yeah. dim lights. Right, yeah. Uh, then there's additional instruction, instructions for Daniel. I require my water bottle and glass straw to sip water upon demand. Yep. Upon demand. <laughs> I require my mouth guard upon request to ensure that my jaw does not lock and that I do not grit my teeth or grind them due to pain. <gasps> Is that a real thing that you can lock your jaw? I don't know. Maybe she's just hypochondriac, but it, I don't know. Oh, no, wow. that sounds sounds yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's always things I'm learning. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you will need to carry lip balm and olive oil, which may be required. <clears throat> I will need I will likely need regular reminders to relax my face and other body parts. Eleven. Okay, we'll, we'll okay, I'm so we'll stressed for you, Daniel. I'm so stressed. She goes, after he's born, keep a close eye on him. Make sure you're watching when his tags are applied and don't let him out of your sight. <laughs> oh if he God. has to be taken out of the room, you should go with him. Okay. I, she didn't watch too many babies. <laughs> I mean, I think she, on she's call been me watching wife. Call Me Wife nonstop. It's just... They don't swap babies anymore. It doesn't happen. I don't want him swapped or someone else's baby <laughs> oh was stolen. God. Just I, take a photo of him immediately so you know what he looks like. First Here's your laughing. Then yeah. you can take a photo, and that's the thing because I'm going to be in charge of telling people, but I don't really want to. I don't want to be on my phone the whole time. Oh no, you just do the one. You ring. You ring a couple of people. Yeah, and you do. Look, my dad did this when I was born. Um, he rang. Um, he rang, you know, a couple of family members, and he rang my um, his mum and said, "Oh, we've we've had a boy. Um, can you ring and tell everybody?" Um, and then he walked into the room and saw pink stuff everywhere, <laughs> and then walked back out and then called mum and uh, called his mum and said, "Actually, it's a boy. Could you it's please?" A girl. <laughs> Yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a girl. Sorry, could you please call? Yeah, right. Else? Well, look, I'm just going to um, post everything on TikTok, and if you want to see it, yeah. you can <laughs> log on. You can log on. Triple R. You've been listening to a podcast, The Best Bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.